This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The World Today. I'm Sally Sara. This Thursday, interest rates set to rise and borrowers are bracing for more cost of living pain. Could it also cost the Prime Minister his keys to the lodge? Well, if you notice Scott Morrison trotting out the lines, this is a global problem. Uh, this is something beyond our control. Just to a large extent, that is correct. But when people go to vote, they're not going to be thinking things are terrible. It's not his fault. It's somebody else's fault. And the PM is making repeated trips to marginal electorates in North Queensland. Will it be enough to sway voters? First up today to the dollars and cents and inflation is running high. It's likely to force the RBA into raising interest rates next week for the first time in several years. But it's not just the cost of bread and milk that's increasing. Housing is a big source of stress for many Australians. Homeowners could see a jump in their interest rates in the coming weeks, while renters are also being squeezed. Catherine Gregory reports. Stretched. That's how Brisbane homeowner Fleur Williams describes her family's budget right now. So she's nervous about a potential interest rate hike. Obviously, you'd have to be. Um, We've probably got maybe a couple of percent left that we would be comfortable with if we had to. Um, But anything over that would be a bit tight. We'd have to tighten up our lifestyle a little bit, a lot. Are you already finding that things are getting a little bit tight? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We've just, uh, and that, you know, combined with obviously the girls want to do dancing and gymnastics, there's a lot to keep juggling. Her interest rate is variable, but the family is trying to pay a little more towards the mortgage bill than what's mandatory to stay on top of it. But she's worried that might have to stop too. If the Reserve Bank decides to raise interest rates next week, as well as cutting back on essential bills. We'd have to look at our our spend on our groceries, which, I mean, I think throughout COVID it got a little bit out of hand as well with lockdowns and stuff, you know, but I wasn't really shopping the specials. I'd probably go back to doing that more and making sure just not wasting as much, just tightening the belt all around really, so. But not everyone's that perturbed at the thought of a rate rise. Deborah is an owner, a property strategist and a spokesperson for the Property Owners Association of New South Wales. I've owned property for... Um, quite a few years and we have been able to get very far ahead with our repayments during the really low interest rate times and so we were preparing for it to go up. Around 3 million Australians have a mortgage and some of them have taken on eye-watering loans, particularly in the more expensive parts of the country. And many of them haven't yet experienced an interest rate rise. I think in certain areas of Australia, uh, the, the, the prospect of rising interest rates um, will probably send a shiver down their spines. Hayden Groves is the Real Estate Institute of Australia president. He says markets in places like Sydney, Hobart and Brisbane could be the worst affected. Who have all experienced substantial gains in, in property values in recent times and therefore higher mortgages. Thankfully, though, our prudential regulation uh, here in in Australia is is very rigorous and already banks have been uh, factoring in rate rises when they're assessing the eligibility for, for people's mortgages. And so most mortgage holders do have a pretty substantial buffer. But Hayden Groves is looking closely at the rental market too. He says a couple of things could happen. If the interest rate rises are are rapid and more substantive than perhaps anticipated uh, and there are more people that opt in to sell their asset and go back to the rental market, 
that'll of course in turn put more pressure on on the supply side of rental stock in Australia, which is already constrained. And so that could actually drive rents up coming off an already quite a high base. Well, the other thing that, that, that can happen generally is rents just stabilise and that we, we tend to, I don't think we'll see rents fall. There have been numerous reports recently about rising rental costs and a limited rental market, particularly in regional areas. Single mother of three, Samantha Groves, is experiencing all of that. She's just outside of Launceston in Tasmania. We got a letter to say that we had to vacate as all the properties were being sold. It means, I'm not sure what it means. We've been looking at rentals. Samantha Groves' current rental is covered under the National Rental Affordability Scheme, which provides discounted rent. But that scheme is soon expiring and she doesn't know how she can afford the private rental market. It's a, it's a big market. It's double what I pay now, so... It's going to be hard. It's going to be real tough. Indeed. And so when you say you've got to rearrange your budget, what can you cut out? There's not really much I can. We, we don't overspend. I don't overspend. I do, my, I do my rent and all that. That gets deducted. Then I do my groceries and I'm pretty much left with, you know, a little bit for fuel. And we get by week by week. We do get by, but I don't know how we will get by if we have to pay double rent. That's renter Samantha Groves in Tasmania, ending that report from Catherine Gregory. Well, for many Australians, the workings of the Reserve Bank Board can be a bit mysterious, even though their decisions directly influence whether home loan repayments will go up or down. So what actually happens when the RBA meets, especially to determine what could be a game changer in the middle of an election campaign? I spoke a short time ago to our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. Peter, good afternoon. You've been covering the RBA for a long time. How do they actually go about making these decisions as to whether to increase rates or not? Well, good afternoon, Sally. The Reserve Bank Board meets on the first Tuesday of the month, except in January. There are nine members, six non-executives appointed by the federal government. They're usually drawn from the business community, along with the RBA Governor Philip Lowe, his Deputy Michelle Bullock, and the Treasury Secretary, Dr Stephen Kennedy. Now, the meeting usually takes place at the RBA's Martin Place headquarters in Sydney and other cities twice a year, but not surprisingly during the pandemic, most meetings have been online. The monthly decisions are based on the views of the majority of members after taking briefings from Governor Lowe and other RBA officials. Philip Lowe as the Governor has the casting vote. The outcome of the meeting is released on the dot at 2.30 Eastern while markets are trading. So any minor tweak, a change in language or decision to raise or lower the RBA's cash rate, currently 0.1%, has the potential to move markets, in particular the Australian dollar especially if rates are going up, which is what we're likely to see on Tuesday with money markets now factoring in a 100% probability of rates going up. Peter, inflation has been on the rise. We're now hitting a 5.1% annual inflation rate. Why hasn't the RBA already acted? Well, Sally, the RBA board's primary mandate is to keep inflation snugly within the 2 to 3% target band, known as the Goldilocks, not too hot, not too cold. For a long time, it was a struggle to get inflation moving, but at 5.1% on the year on the headline rate and 3.7% on the RBA's preferred reading of underlying inflation, this is way beyond the comfort zone. So there's criticism that the RBA board has been too slow to act, using the out of waiting for evidence of a lose of wages growth. But that's raised concerns that by being perhaps timid by not getting in front of inflation, there's a perception about not wanting to act during an election campaign, even though the RBA 
has legislated independence from government since 1996, brought in by Peter Costello as Liberal Treasurer. But more broadly, the RBA oversees the stability of the Australian currency, the maintenance of full employment, now 4%, but also, quote, the economic prosperity and welfare of the people of Australia, reasons that uh, then-RBA Governor Glenn Stevens uh, gave for hiking interest rates in 2007, a week out from the election, when the big reason in the national interest was confronting very hot inflation. So, Peter, if the RBA does increase interest rates on Tuesday, what will that mean for borrowers? Uh, For borrowers on variable rate deals, every quarter of a percentage point increase in the cash rate when passed on to a standard 25-year mortgage means an additional $13 for every $100,000 borrowed from the bank. So if the average mortgage is around $500,000, that's an extra $65 a month. But if the RBA speeds up the rate hikes over the year by uh, two percentage points or so, which is what markets are predicting, then that could see monthly repayments going up by around $520 a month. So for borrowers who haven't read the signs and factored in higher rates, that term mortgage stress could be making a comeback. That's Peter Ryan. Let's have a look at the political implications now. And the last time interest rates went up during an election campaign was 2007, in the weeks before John Howard lost his prime ministerialship and his own seat after 11 years in the top job. Scott Morrison insists the circumstances this time around are very different, but he concedes Australia isn't out of the woods yet, as his challenger, Anthony Albanese, prepares to rejoin the campaign trail after a week out with COVID. David Lipson reports. It's seven days since Anthony Albanese received the text message many in Labor were dreading. I got the shock of my life when it came back positive, but then the symptoms did kick in. But the Labor leader told Mix 94.5 he plans to be back on the hustings tomorrow, albeit slightly off his normal pace. My medical advice that uh, I I have is that I have to take it more slowly than I would normally coming back. Uh, No 16 to 20 hour days in the first week. As always in politics, a lot's changed in a week. Cost of living, always a big issue, is now shaping as the defining one, with inflation much worse than expected and the Reserve Bank board set to raise interest rates next week. They need to make the judgments they need to make in the best interests of the Australian economy. Prime Minister Scott Morrison knows a rate rise may not be in his own best interest. The last time it happened mid-campaign was almost 15 years ago, in the days before John Howard was turfed out of office. In 2007, the cash rate was 6.5%. Today it is 0.1%. So I think to draw an equivalence between those two issues would be to misunderstand history. Inflation is highest in Hobart, Brisbane and especially Perth, which recorded a 7.6% increase. And mortgage stress is worst in the outer suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne, affecting marginal seats aplenty. So the PM is blaming external factors, the pandemic and the war in Ukraine, pointing out Australia is doing better than the US, UK, Canada and New Zealand, and warning voters now is not the time to change captains. You have to sail on the waters that you're on. And the waters that we've had to sail on as a government in the economic world and in the global security world have been the choppiest we've seen since the Second World War and the Great Depression. But our ship is sailing ahead and it's heading in the right direction. 
and now is not the time to risk that on unproven sailors. The cut of Labor's jib is to nail the cost of living pain directly onto the coalition mast after nine years of ballooning debt and slow wages growth. In this government have presided over this massive increase in the cost of living at the same time as wages are going backwards and they're the governmental equivalent of the school kids saying the dog ate my homework like it's always someone else's fault and mr albanese is promising labor will increase wages by boosting productivity in the workplace cheaper childcare, cheaper electricity in order to lower people's costs of living and by making things more in Australia by growing the economy and strengthening it, but also giving people the skills uh, to get those well-paid jobs. So Labor's now charging into two battlefields where the coalition normally holds the higher ground, economic management and national security. And the coalition says bring it on. In the face of medical advice for Anthony Albanese to take it easy for the next week, the Prime Minister's challenged him to not one but two more debates in the coming days. I'm happy to do both of them. I said I'd do three. I've already done one. He said he'd debate me anywhere, anytime. So seven and nine, they've booked the hall. I'll be there. I look forward to seeing you. That's the Prime Minister there, Scott Morrison, ending that report from David Lipson. Right across the country, you're listening to The World Today. Well, let's take a look at the bigger picture. Where is the economy headed and can Scott Morrison win if interest rates rise? While John Howard lost the 2007 election when rates rose during the campaign, he did hold on in 2004 when rates were already on the way up. George Megalogenis is an author and journalist. We've never been more indebted than we are today. We've never had... Uh, households as exposed as they are today. And we haven't had this sort of rapid run-up in housing prices at the same time. Trickiest part now is to, is whether people uh, react to this calmly or whether they have a freak out. And if they have a freak out, and a freak out, it can happen in a number of ways, but the biggest freak out is that suddenly everybody panics about housing prices and tries to capitalise the gains they've made and then they flood the market with property and then prices collapse. The bank doesn't want that. Uh, the other freak out is that businesses start to get a bit testy with one another in terms of and they start to squeeze each other and then businesses start to fall over. And for the general economy, households make the calculation that they can't afford to keep enjoying life now that we've come out of lockdown. Two-thirds of all GDP comes from comes from household consumption. Suddenly the economy goes from looking too hot to very, very cool and and then going backwards. What are the political implications of inflation going up and interest rate rises on the way? There, there's often an interesting balance between what politicians will take credit for and what they'll take responsibility for. Well, have you noticed uh, even today, Scott Morrison, trotting out the lines that this is a global problem, this is something beyond our control. To, to a large extent, that is correct. But when people go to vote, they're not going to be thinking things are terrible, it's not his fault, it's somebody else's fault. The 2004 election campaign, there was a context of rising interest rates. Interest rates went up a couple of times in 2003. Uh, John Howard was able to, partly because he's a wily old fox, and he'd sort of been here before as treasurer in the Fraser years with, with higher inflation and then facing off against Keating in 96 and beating him. In 2004, he reframed the threat of higher interest rates as, look, whatever's happening on my watch, it's going to be worse under that, you know, inexperienced, uh, volatile Labor leader. Remember him, Mark Latham? 
So it worked for Howard. Higher interest rates didn't hurt him because he was able to reframe that conversation about who you trust to keep them lower than they otherwise would be. I don't see that that is the easy conversation that uh, Scott Morrison could have this time around against an Anthony Albanese. Anthony Albanese isn't Mark Latham. And Scott Morrison, no disrespect, is not John Howard. So we're in waters we've charted before and waters that are not favourable for the incumbent. Just finally, uh, George, what, what's your outlook? If people are looking at this as, as members of, of households and wondering what's coming, how do you see it? Uh, I think you need to be putting more money aside than you did uh, the last few years. So remember, we've, come, we've just come out of quite an extraordinary two-year experiment in paying people to stay at home to deal with, with the coronavirus. So there's still a lot of money that the government has put into our pockets as households uh, through JobKeeper and JobSeeker payment. So there's still a lot of savings there to be, to be deployed. So what we're really looking at now is is the central bank, the Reserve Bank, trying to slow economic activity. The government's still wanting to buy another election, so they're, they're still, there's a lot of money sloshing around. But the calculation that the household sector makes is, is the future more certain uh, than the present and the recent past? I think the future is less certain. And we know we know from the theory when, when people are nervous about the future, they start reducing the risks they take. So they may be not going to be spending as much. So I think people might be, even though there's some savings still sort of locked away that theoretically people could spend to keep the economy ticking over, I think the danger now is that we go into that turtle uh, shell mode and uh, the economy slows and possibly goes backwards in the next year or so. That's author and journalist George Megalogenis. The major parties are shaping up for a battle over the marginal far north Queensland electorate of Leichhardt, with the Prime Minister adding his political weight with another visit today. Many in the region's diverse community are doing it tough, dealing with the pandemic's damage to the tourism industry, dealing with cost of living pressures and homelessness. The incumbent MP, Warren Ench, has held the seat on and off over 20 years, but there are signs Labor thinks it might have a chance to end that run. Stephanie Smale reports. The Prime Minister hit the airwaves in Cairns early. As the famous tourism slogan goes, where the bloody hell have you been? (laughs) Well, I'm great to be back here in Cairns. I was just here a few weeks ago. Delivering a clear appeal to stick with the Coalition and long-serving MP Warren Ench. Stay with the trusted economic team with Warren Ench on the ground. In 2019, when the Coalition gained favour across the rest of Queensland, Warren Ench had the lowest swing and his primary vote went backwards. He said he would retire but has since committed to keep going, today promising funding for a marine precinct in Cairns. When we start a project, it's very, very important that we finish it. And if we're going to make commitments to future progress uh, projects, we've got to make sure that we actually know where we're going to build it, we know how, how much it's going to cost and we fund it completely. Labor has promised funding for the Marine Precinct too and leader Anthony Albanese hasn't been a stranger to the electorate either. Forget all the opinion polls, always look for where the leaders are going. Former State Labor Speaker John McKell points out the amount of money and time being thrown at Leichhardt is a sign both major parties think they've got a chance. But he says with 11 candidates running and huge diversity across the seat, the outcome is far from certain. So you've got the the Cape, which is predominantly Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander. Then even within Cairns itself, you've got a 
a green grouping, then you've got a more laborist part, and then as you move south to the newer and younger suburbs, there's a different dynamic there. So it's it's an electorate that moves in different parts, if you will. So it needs different messages in different parts of the seat. It is the, the, the greenest of regional and rural seats. The green vote there is significant. But the other thing, there is a fracturing of the right in Leichhardt. This is a seat where one nation do not do well simply because of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island component. Unlike most other seats except for Kennedy, this is a seat where the Catters Australia Party do very, very well. Warren Ench does have green credentials as the Morrison government's special envoy for the Great Barrier Reef and an active force in the net zero emissions push. John McKell says the coalition's infighting over coal doesn't reflect well in a seat like Leichhardt. What doesn't help him is the position of the Queensland National Party side of the Liberal National Party. So what you've seen this week is the candidate for Flynn in a breakout saying, look, it's all a bit wobbly anyway. Uh, Matt Canavan saying, look, the target's all rubbish. So he will try to insulate himself from that. That's John McKell, former Queensland Parliamentary Speaker, ending that report from Stephanie Smale. Finally today, at the defamation trial, Ben Robert Smith is running against three newspapers. The court has heard a former SAS soldier called Person 35 wore a Ku Klux Klan costume to a party on the Australian base at Tarrancott. The court has also heard that his legal fees are being paid by the billionaire businessman Kerry Stokes. Our reporter Samantha Donovan is following the case and joins me now. Sam, good afternoon. What has this witness had to say about this uh, costume party at TK? Well, Person 35 has given evidence, Sally, that he was the soldier wearing the KKK costume in those photos that were published by the newspapers and have become pretty notorious. They were taken at a a party at the bar, um, which is called the Fat Lady's Arms, that's on the Australian base at Tarrancott, taken in 2012. Uh, Person 35 has told Mr Robert Smith's barrister, Arthur Moses SC, this morning that he hadn't ordered a costume online as the other soldiers had had and that was the easiest costume for him to make. He told the court, quote, I knew person 86 was coming in blackface, so I thought it would be funny if I came as a Klansman. It was just a parody, just to make fun of the Klan itself. They're pretty pathetic. It was to make a joke of it. Uh, The court heard Sally that he wasn't reprimanded by his superiors for wearing the costume to the party and, in fact, won the fancy dress competition that night. Sam, what else has Person 35 been asked about today? Well, he's been under cross-examination by the barrister for the newspapers, Nicholas Owens SC, and he's admitted that he follows social media sites that post highly critical commentary on this case online. Uh, Mr Owens referred him to a a very foul-mouthed post about the case and a lawyer involved in it, which Person 35 had liked online. Uh, Mr Owens put to him that the, the lawyer who was being referred to was in fact him as the barrister for the newspapers. Uh, Person 35 denied it. He said it wasn't about Mr Owens personally. He said it was just about the whole proceedings. He said, quote, it was a bit of dark humour that shouldn't be taken seriously and it was meant to 
agitate and it seems to have worked. Sally Nicholas Owens SC has repeatedly put to person 35 that he believes the actions of people like Ben Robert Smith in Afghanistan shouldn't be questioned and even if SAS operators had committed war crimes they did so to get rid of bad people like the Taliban. Person 35 denied this. He's adamant no war crimes were committed by Ben Robert Smith in Afghanistan or by others. He told the court he's upset that Mr Robert Smith's conduct is being scrutinised, but he's strongly denied that he's lying to the court about what happened in Afghanistan to protect his friend. And as you mentioned, Sally, Person 35 has confirmed that the billionaire businessman Kerry Stokes is paying his legal fees. He says he's never met Mr Stokes. The fees are for this case and for the Inspector General of the ADF's investigations into the war crimes allegations. Person 35 has told the court that Mr Robert Smith arranged for Mr Stokes to pay his legal fees. Sam, thank you. That's our reporter, Samantha Donovan, covering the latest there in the defamation trial, which has been launched by Ben Robert Smith. Well, that's all from the World Today team for this Thursday. Stay with us on the ABC. The PM team will be along later today, bringing the latest news and analysis from right across the country and around the world. Thanks to your company. We'll be back again same time tomorrow. I'm Sally Sara. Enjoy your afternoon. host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Russia's begun its final onslaught of the vitally important Ukrainian port city of Mariupol, which has seen some of the most intense fighting since the war began. Today, Ukrainian MP Alexander Moreshko on what could be a decisive turning point in the war and how incredibly, in the capital Kyiv, life's returning to normal. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.